Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Ellie Not So Confidential. This is Dr. Scott back in the closet, the recording closet that is on one side of Southern California with the amazingly talented, intelligent and strikingly beautiful Dr. Shiloh. That is so sweet of you. Five years in, most podcasters have moved out of a closet. So you did the reverse. You just started going into the closet. I know. And look at NR. And finally, people have stopped complaining about our sound, which is really nice. We got so many nice compliments on the improvement in sound, (laughs) which is great. But welcome back, everybody. So let me just get us started with a little bit of housekeeping. Time is running out, but you can still get tickets to attend the Pacific Northwest True Crime Festival and hear us and see us speak on October 8th, 2022 in Auburn, Washington. It is www which nobody says anymore i know by the it way. doesn't feel weird saying it out loud I, it does so i'm just gonna say i'm gonna i'm gonna spell it out for you guys p n w true crime fest.com and we have a code there for you to get a discount l a not so 15 so l a n o t s o 15 to get your 15 percent discount off of your ticket price yes come see us i just want to brag about you for a hot second because this week Scott and I did a presentation at a negotiators conference. He swooped in, did the presentation with me, swooped out, but I was there all week and people all week long after you left were so complimentary, obviously of the talk itself, but they were like, Scott was so great. Cause I know a lot of people and it was their first time meeting you and everyone was smitten with you. Why are you, oh, why do you have a confused look on your face? Duh. I, because I, I mean, I look, well, thank you. First of all, I'm, I'm absolutely flattered and bowled over. I will say this, I mean, not to minimize that compliment, but that was a kick-ass audience. Wasn't by the a way. great audience. I know. I mean, I have done presentations to audiences that are literally zombified and crickets. <laughs> and I thought this was one of the most amazing audiences ever. Everyone was so attentive and people were taking notes yeah. and taking pictures of the presentation. So, I mean, I I think that our subject matter, which we did a a revamped, expanded two-hour version of our incel presentation that you and I have done in various incarnations. I have done it for a government agency. We've both done it for a government agency. We've done it for a college. We've done Mm -hmm. it for a number of private companies. Yeah. But again, thank you. I mean, it was just all so fun. Like I... The thing that made it so fun was that we know this material back and forth, and then you got extra new research, which was so cool. And then at the very last minute, like, I didn't realize you had added like three extra slides. (laughs) So I was like, oh, I have to, I got to improvise. So I think that's maybe where my, the gift of Southern Gab comes out as I started extrapolating on that. That's why I love you as my co-presenter, (laughs) because... I know I could do that. But also we had a female detective come up afterwards and she's like, I love you guys. I didn't know you were going to be here. This is the biggest surprise. And she listens to our show. And I just want to say hello to her. I'm not going to say her name, but is she that was the lovely. one that you introduced me to? That we took a picture with. Oh, what, yeah. a, what an amazing woman. She's like, like she was really girling. excited. Like, do you guys it know who these people cool. are? <laughs> no. It was very cool. <laughs> Where people are like, no, who are these? Because psychologists coming into mental or into law enforcement conferences can be kind of iffy. Like you don't know what you're going to get. And so I think yeah. people get suspect, but it's the best crowd because it's negotiators are a very cerebral group. You know, they are empathic. They have to have the gift of gab to talk to people, to get them to come out of these situations. And there's a lot of overlap with people who also work mental health units. So this this group was perfect because they just get us. So was successful. You have stated that way better than I ever could because I that absolutely puts a label on the vibe there yeah. is that it's a special type of person that does this type of work. And, you know, it like clearly people are coming from a lot of different backgrounds and people are coming from a lot of different perspectives. And yeah. yet they're all meeting in Rome. All roads lead to Rome. And I felt like that's why we it was so successful is we had a good presentation, but we also had like a very invested audience. For so sure. if you're out there listening, guys and ladies, thank you so very much for letting us be there. Okay, so if you 
you missed our last episode, it was episode 110, and it was more of sort of a fun storytelling episode, but we did dive into the real story of the book and the film Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil. So we gave you information about the real people, as well as the details of the crime and the four trials, because if you watch the movie, it just looks like it was one trial. But we also dove into what the practice of hoodoo is as we continue our way towards spooky fall season. So that was that one was great with history yeah. and culture and we've been getting some good feedback on that. You know, I mean, of course, I love all things spooky and anything slightly paranormal related. Yeah. And this was one where the the movie was and the book are so respectful of that process. I thought this was a good selection. Sure. I had no idea we would get the amount of positive feedback. I mean, we we have great listeners, but this one really instigated a lot of direct messages to us mm -hmm. about how much they enjoyed it. So again, thanks for listening. And I'm so glad you enjoyed that. Yeah. So on that note, let's just talk about quickly what we're watching or what we're listening to or reading. Sure. Leading up to Savannah, I was listening to the podcast, The Most Haunted City on Earth, which is all about Savannah and the hauntings there. It was just getting prepared. It's really good. They are paranormal investigators. The woman at least is a medium. So she gives her perspective as well. Then I've been listening to pretend podcast, you know, Javier's doing this great series on Frank Abagnale, but he has a series on sovereign citizens that Ooh. I went back and listened to. We were talking about it at True Crime Podcast Festival. And he's like, oh, you know what those are? You have to go listen to my episodes. Some crazy uh, cases that he talks about. Well, just as a note for us in future presentations to add to our roster of things that we could present on, the whole sovereign citizen thing is a phenomenon yep. unto itself. And the psych issues behind it are deep, very deep. Yeah, well, it goes to those extreme yeah. overvalued beliefs again. Exactly. You know? Yeah. And then there's another podcast I've been listening to called In the Land of Lies, and it's done by Sean Kipe. I met the real life folks behind that in Savannah. They were there and it's about a potentially wrongful conviction of a police officer. And he's been in prison for decades now, but I was able to meet his wife and the author of the book that this podcast is based on. And it's excellent. So oh, that sounds great. Really interesting. And then TV show wise, I actually watched something I never have to Time to watch anything, but I watched Echoes on Netflix. It's with the I saw twins. That. It's come up from, okay. Yeah. Oh, right. It's like a, a murder mystery ish, and it, it has adult twin women in it. So I won't say anymore because it's like spoiler alerts all over the place, but it was good. It was fun. Oh, sounds good. Yeah. So I am continuing to, I know people are sick of hearing this by now. I'm still going through a 20 hour personality disorder educational CEU that is phenomenal. So good that I back it up all the time. And unfortunately, or fortunately, the guy has led me to other research that I thought, well, before I listen to any more, I need to go read that article and read this article. And then that led me to another. We got a, a slightly, well, it wasn't slightly. It was actually a pretty negative comment, which is fine. You know, we believe me, we've got tough skin. We yeah. can handle it. <laughs> but we got a one-star review allegedly based on one of our streaming episodes right. where a listener was not particularly happy that we gave a platform to someone who alleges themselves to have paranormal abilities. Oh, our medium oh, oh okay. I thought you were talking so, the most. Which recent. is fine. You know, like I believe me, it's, I get your perspective. I don't get why you gave us a one star re review or whatever your yeah. review was based on one episode. That was kind of odd, but Hey, you do you, sure. but that led me to go like, Hey, I haven't looked at the actual research on fringe phenomenon. And there is real research out there. So I've started reading an article where a neuropsychiatrist is is alleging in his research that the phenomenon of mirror neurons is actually contributing to the experience that people have as mediums, oh. as telepaths, right. and they're actually doing scientific studies of it. So maybe down the road, once I've got enough legit research, we can do an episode on that, that and how it ties into very crime and stuff. We know about our mirror neurons anyway, like just tunes us into other people. So absolutely. Who knows it's what necessary is. For, what yeah, it's like, yeah, it's working on a different level that most people are unconscious of. So yeah, yeah very interesting stuff. And I'm a, of course, I'm a huge horror fan because how do I, how do I relax from my true crime binges? <laughs> I go and watch horror movies. So I watched a really great low budget Scandinavian horror movie called Moloch <gasps> that's on Hulu. 
Ooh. And it's a cross between the skeleton key and hereditary, which is kind of cool. And then I'm super, super excited about a podcast that's been out there for a couple of years that is new every Halloween called 13 Days of Halloween Podcast. Oh, how fun. And last year was all like a 13 sort of standalone, but related episodes all hosted by Kathy Najimi. And she was just lovely and caring in a really creepy way. That is okay. Like really fr- you can still up there if anybody wants to go listen to it. I'm going to add both of those because, you know, I love Scandinavian crime shows. So Scandinavian. Yeah, you'll like this one. Ooh, okay. Very good. Well, today we're here to talk about the true crime documentary. I just killed my dad. Mm. A three-part docuseries on Netflix that originally aired this summer in 2022. Off the top, Dr. Scott, what do you think of the title? I just killed my dad. <laughs> Is it like a bad Maury okay, you're totally You're totally <laughs> setting me up because I hate the title. It's awful. Um, I absolutely love the series. I think it's like really great. It knows what it's doing. But the title, I think, was I, I was like ready for something really trashy. But I guess, I don't know, maybe they chose a trashiness of title to get more people to watch it, but I thought it was exceptionally good. What about you? Um, Yeah, I think we can give our overall ratings at the end when we do our brain ratings. But yeah, the title turned me off a little bit and then I was skipping over it and then everyone's like, "Um, hello, are you guys watching this? (laughs) Yeah, they sure were. We trust you guys and we decided to go ahead and watch it. So it has a Rotten Tomatoes score of 100%. I Just Killed My Dad is a true crime documentary series about Anthony Template, a teenage boy who goes through the judicial system and briefly is imprisoned for murdering his father. This is set up very early in the show. Anthony shot his father. He immediately called the police on himself and he never denied the act. And on first glance, the title implies this is going to be an open and shut case. That was my impression, right? So the real story is so much more complex and it challenges the viewer to take into account an increasingly terrible history of neglect abuse and emotional manipulation. Yeah. So like with a lot of documentaries, the viewers offered this sort of open and shut case that then morphs into the story of here, a child forced to endure more than a decade of isolation and abuse, which results in just in those first few minutes of you watching Anthony and going, what is really going on here? Yeah. I mean, it was, it's good storytelling. Yeah. I mean, it's good storytelling in that it, 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 it redirects you and grabs your interest. And then the next redirect is what is the hook because mm-hmm. it allows us to view this broad exploration of Anthony's psyche and his emotional life prior to that crime, as well as what happens afterwards. So why he perpetrated this crime is a really complex question with complex answers and really profound implications. Yeah. So the director of this is Sky Borgman and executive producer is Dirk Hoekstra. And the Netflix docuseries has been at the top 10 most watched shows on Netflix in the U.S. since the initial airing. You want to give a trigger warning here for gun violence, child abuse and neglect, intimate partner violence, as well as explicit and implicit trauma themes. So there's a lot going on here as we will uncover. So the documentary has three episodes. In episode one, it starts off pretty standard with your 911 call where he says, I just killed my dad. Anthony Template was arrested and charged with the murder of his father. Anthony was found to have shot his father three times. Interestingly, Template told the officers that he and his father had had an early morning argument that sort of led to tension building all day. And Anthony asserted that his dad, Bert, had been drunk and aggressive and further Anthony's actions had been to defend himself. So immediately the police take Anthony into custody and an ambulance comes to pick up his father who is still breathing and transports Bert to the hospital. Bert is put on life support, but he dies a few days later when Anthony's stepmom, who is by this time estranged from Bert, but she decides to end all life-sustaining measures after consulting with doctors when they were just saying, look, there's just, there's no chance he's going to survive in anything other than a vegetative state. Yeah. So we're pretty sort of simultaneously, obviously not literally, but in the documentary in episode one, you see the initial police interviews with Anthony, but you also see Anthony sitting down for the documentary crew and being interviewed as well. So I want to talk about 
Anthony's presentation in the police interviews, just because this is almost like our first look at him right after the crime happened. So you see some slight, you know, bizarre hand, body, head movements that maybe you're going, okay, what's going on here? Is this trauma? Is this a developmental disability? Who knows? But you quickly pick up that something's not right here. He's very forthcoming. He's very nonchalant when answering these questions about this incident, but you're not quite sure. I, for me, I was like, is this pure psychopath? Because <laughs> that, th- I think, I feel like that's kind of what they're feeding you at first. Like it's just a cold hearted kid. Or are there some intellectual development issues present? What did you think was going on at first, Scott? Oh, I think you're, you're right spot on because I was back and forth. Like, okay. And, and then I kind of caught myself like, oh, they're, Maybe they're setting up for a dramatic effect that, yeah, he's going to come across as quirky and odd mm. and he's a psychopath. But immediately I'm going, no, there's there's something else yeah. going on. There, There's clearly something else going on. Yeah. And he's so well-spoken, but like... I mean, we'll get in, it's very significant. We're going to, yeah. we'll get into the, like all those things. It's kind of choppy. It's kind of strange, his presentation. But yeah. he, he goes on to explain that basically his, before this incident occurred, his dad was looking through his phone to find evidence right. of Anthony talking to his estranged stepmother. And this is what really kicked off the conflict. Which is interesting because I didn't pick up on that mm-hmm. at the beginning. Mm-hmm. I mean, like you pick up on it like, oh, he's okay. Yeah, well, we got mad about that. Yeah. And then later, you really understand why that is such a big deal. We're going to come back to that. So essentially, Anthony says that the interaction between him and his dad, Bert, went from a verbal to a physical altercation. Anthony escapes into his father's room and barricades himself. Then he arms himself with handguns that he knew his father kept in a closet. His father's beating at the door. And at one point, there's silence. Anthony thinks Bert has hurt himself. So he opens the door. Dad's still standing there and he shoots dad. Yeah. So it's, it's already complicated. And at this point in the first episode, we're getting a first person interview with Anthony again, with the, the documentary crew who is clearly not in custody, right? If he's sitting down there with them and you're kind of like, well, God, this seems so recent, like what's happening, but he's wearing an ankle monitor and participating in the filmmaking, as it seems, before this case is even resolved. So I was just left really confused. Like, But I I think that's on purpose, right? For you to continue to watch to figure out what's happening because you want to know what the heck transpired here. Like, how is he out but with an ankle monitor? And this just happened, you know, not even a year and a half ago. It's just a lot of questions at the beginning, which is okay. It's not, I I don't find it like a turn off to this. I just thought it was interesting. No, it's interesting. I, I, I picked up on a couple of other things that happened, like uh, the ankle monitor too was significant to me, but I noticed about his hair, like he uh. had a very, in, in once that set of interviews where he's wearing the ankle monitor, he has a very teenage haircut. Yeah. Like this is what I'm choosing. Or maybe it was, I mean, it might've been suggested by the stylist or the barber or something, but he's kind of working the bangs a lot, which is like, seems like a little bit of yeah. Discomfort, but it's, I don't know. It just felt like, I don't, how would he have that if he was in jail? And then you find out that he's, he's not. Okay. So what I saw in the initial interviews is, you know, off-putting to say the least. I mean, I saw an awkward kid in an interview chair with some very odd presentational features. He has what we call an altered affect. And affect, of course, is the facial expression of emotion. And it has a wide range that is based on a lot of different factors, including a person's family background, their personal experience, mental health conditions, their cultural background. So it's safe to say that there's generally a lot of variance. But even considering that variance, his is what we would say notable. Yeah. So I talked about like what I thought when I first saw him in those police interviews, but what he's saying is really interesting also because yes you it's quick we quickly hear that like he doesn't know simple things like his birthday and again as we're primed with all these true crime documentaries i think people could go oh is he just being like oppositional or difficult yes and doesn't want to give them the information right but he's not able to provide them with a home address just like a little kid might not know or you have to sort of go over it with them and have them memorize it and police then realize that they weren't 
dealing with a straightforward murder anymore, but they quickly, thank goodness, pick up on the fact, like, is Anthony delayed either mentally or medically? Is there something going on with this kid? So very interesting. Let's just put a pin in those two things that you gave as examples. Okay. I don't know my birthday and I don't know my address. Right. Right. Because it seems insignificant at first, it's very significant sure. later on. But going, I wanted to go back for a second to the idea of affect in the documentary. As we watch Anthony in various situations of interview or watching him socialize with family members, he expresses a very limited range of affect. Again, it's it's off-putting and the viewer might very quickly make assumptions about who he is as a person, what kind of challenges he might have, because his presentation is outside the accepted range of sort of expected normal behavior. And I'm using normal in air quotes because we we have, we have a, an acronym we use in writing reports, WNL, within normal limits. And everybody uses it, but we all have a problem with it because what does that mean? What is within normal limits for this particular person? But Anthony's facial affect falls between flat or completely devoid of emotion and blunted which is a slight step above flat. It means that occasionally we see tiny slivers of emotional experience that emerge through his facial presentation. Later, however, I would reclassify his affect into another category called restricted, but I'm going to talk about that a little bit later. So when we look at his vocal tone, Anthony's vocal tone has very little variance. There is a really notable lack of rhythm or cadence in his voice. So to give you an example, this is sort of not something that you're used to talking about. Like think about on the extreme other end of the spectrum would be a, a news reporter's voice right. that has a very expected cadence that is up and down in order to keep you interested. There you go. Right? So that is something that's way over the top and that, you know, anchors and and salesmen and commercial actors are taught to do. And there's a reason for it. It's to keep you engaged. Anthony's really on the other end of it. And there's very little variance in the way he talks. You might not notice it, but most people do have a recognizable pattern to their voice, which they may have learned from their family members or their community. Anthony has a significant lack of these identifying markers. And there is a reason for this that we later discover. So eye contact, he has some inconsistency in how he makes eye contact with people throughout this documentary from the interviews to interactions with his family members. And he does have some odd body movements. Like you were saying, he has this sort of jerky and unexpected arm gesture. He has very poor posture and somewhat repetitive motions with his hairstyle. Like I was saying, you know, throwing his bangs out of the way or sweeping his hand across his forehead. But a good bit of this could be explained in the context of general teen challenges and development. But True. when it's viewed in this way through recorded police interviews and documentary interviews, you know, I would put a note in there and say, okay, this is going to be notable. These things are somewhat significant. Yeah. So he seems to be evasive too. And it's later found out that it's likely not intentional. Like you were saying, he just really lacks a significant amount of background and life experience from which to pull as well as information. Yeah. I mean, could you imagine you are, well, I don't want to, I mean, I know we're going to get there, like what he has been and has not been exposed to in his life, but just anyone sitting down for a police interrogation. And now you have someone who has had limited interaction with anyone. And is now, you, you know, I think we do like, the, I love that you just, as we have said before, you use the term as this is notable. I'm going to note it. I don't know what it means yet. It's sort of out of some normal limits, but this is a very, very unusual situation with a kid with a very, very unusual background. Yeah. So all of these factors are adding up yep. and and they're interviewing detectives that are making the same yes. notations that we are, but they're using it from a different paradigm of investigation versus evaluation. But they're noting a lot of the same things. He has also, what's the word, a paucity of response. Like verbal paucity is a symptom that of some mental health disorders and it's characterized by like a reduction in speech, like a reduction in the number of words, reduction in or increase in and time elapsed between sentences. And it's noticeable that Anthony has a pretty limited vocabulary. Although it's clear he is at least of average or higher intelligence in the way that he's able to frame concepts and ideas that he doesn't have a problem with. But so it makes it even more jarring that he has these other things that are outside the normal range. Again, verbal paucity is part of this entire constellation of behaviors that I think are serving a purpose. I think the purpose of all of these behaviors are to keep him safe. So it's his 
way to keep himself safe. So I, I do. I Got think it. it's like, I think what we're going to find out mm -hmm. is that he's in an incredibly hyper vigilant state nonstop. And it's all about walking on eggshells yeah. in his, in his residential experience. Yeah. Yeah. So we're, we're looking at this outwardly behavior and trying to draw clues from it. It's very interesting as we move on. I just love this quote from him as he's being interviewed by the filmmakers where he says, cause he seems completely devoid of emotion. Right. And he says, I can have feelings for people, but I choose not to for him speaking about his father. Yeah. I thought that was just very poignant. But let's and so telling. Oh yes, 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 yes. So let's look at some other aspects of Anthony's social behavior. Again, we're still talking about him a little bit in adulthood. At one point, his father does reach out to a friend to get Anthony a job. So while as a viewer, you're already kind of waiting for something terrible to happen, he gets this job. You're starting to see that he is a bit of an oddball. We don't know why. So he does surprisingly well, but it's really clear to his peers and coworkers that something is quote unquote off with him. He has poor social skills. He doesn't even pick up on like pop culture references. None. Nothing. And lacks even basic sort of assumed human interactions. So the example that one of his female coworkers gives is that she goes, oh yeah, high five. And he looks at her and is like, what's that? Like, what are you doing? As she puts her hand up to get a high five from her. who does not know what a high five is. Yeah. And yeah. so it's just like, wait, really telling how sheltered has this kid been? I think as a collective audience, we're, we're saying that his coworkers kind of come to the conclusion of like, oh, okay, like this is due to the fact that he was homeschooled, which is later revealed to have been minimal, minimal at best. I don't even know if there's a smaller word for it than it was, but Anthony really was having, he lived with no education and a reading level that's much, much lower than would be expected for his age as a, a later age teenager. It seems like a lot of his verbal interactions or his, at least his ability, you know, to communicate may have been coming from gaming. I think oh, he was a like okay, a, yeah. a, a big online gamer. So now let's switch the focus for a bit to Bert. The documentary really starts laying out a linear timeline and history for Bert's increasing paranoia. And I mean, immediately you're, you're shown the, how many cameras there are. And I mean, there are cameras all over the interior and the exterior of the house. He has trackers on all of the phones. He knows when Anthony's moving, when he's not moving, checking in on him all day. Even when he had gotten him this job, he's still like checking in on him. So the underlying reason for all of Bert's paranoia and hypervigilance is eventually revealed. A DNA search by an adorable web sleuth leads to a match with Anthony's long lost half-sister, Natasha. And it's revealed that Anthony had been abducted by Bert, his biological father, 11 years earlier. Anthony had been a missing person for more than a decade. Crazy. So crazy. Yeah. In a later interview, Natasha stated, after 11 years of waiting to hear if my brother is still alive, he's found. He has been secluded and abused all these years by his own father. My brave brother had to defend himself for the last time against that evil man. Oh, I'm getting chills because you're just like, okay, there's this weird situation, this kid kills his dad so weird you know he we're starting to learn that he's sheltered people are picking up on things and then you realize holy shit like he's basically been abducted and held away from the world for 11 years and yeah. yes this adorable web sleuth she's just so sweet and just wanted to help and gets basically gets wind of this crime happening and she's like What's, what's going on here? And she starts digging yeah. around. She's really good. Really and, good. And finds the family, which is just wild. So that's the end of episode one. We go into episode two. And after that major cliffhanger, we learned that there were no wants or warrants in the system for Bert and that Anthony wasn't even in the missing person system, which at first is completely baffling. You're just like, what kind of fucked up police work happening right? here? Yeah. So then we get introduced to his biological mother, Teresa, and she starts explaining her heartbreaking experience of getting into this relationship with this total narcopath, Bert. And it's very classic coercive control where he's using these techniques against her. I mean, he's very, very savvy with it, as well as really brutal physical violence 
against Teresa and he was badly abusing cocaine, which even more fueled the violence, even though he had a totally different life, right? Because he's like, goes to work. He's this responsible person. He's a supervisor and then comes home using drugs, drinking, beating her and really just keeping her locked down. And it's, it's a really powerful moment where Teresa talks about the abuse and then Teresa's mother talks about the abuse of her violent husband and her own alcoholic father. And Teresa's mom says, I just don't know how to break the cycle of violence. You know, here's this Mm -hmm. elderly woman that is kind of looking at these old photographs on the mirror of these men that have been in her life. And you can just see like all the weight on her shoulders that I didn't break this cycle of violence. And now my daughter went through it. And now look what's happened with my grandson. It's really heartbreaking. I'm glad you talk about that because I think grandmother's journey on this is, is heartbreakingly poignant Yeah. Oh gosh. because, you know, I mean, I'm glad that they didn't demonize her. It's, it's wonderful that she has the courage to, to say these things because she also reveals something else that she's yeah. been carrying for a long, long time. But you know, it, it takes a lot of courage to be able to say like, and, and to understand for us as an audience member, or if you are a peer of someone who is going through this, the helplessness in which you are captured when you are a victim of intimate partner violence is so horrific. You feel like, well, I'm responsible. I should be able to, I should be able to know how to get out of this. And that's just not how it works. Like the practical understanding versus the emotional facility and ability to extricate yourself from the situations. Those are two completely, completely different things. Back to our story, Anthony's sister, Natasha, shares her memories of what life was like before Bert kidnapped Anthony. Bert and my mom were together for about 10 years, and it was extremely violent. I can only imagine what Anthony's been through. When he was a baby, Bert would hold him in his arms while abusing my mother. Yeah, it paints such a horrific picture. And I also love that they incorporate interviews with the domestic violence advocate that worked with Teresa. So from her expertise, she can talk about the coercive aspects of Bert's behavior and perpetrators crimes overall. I mean, I thought she was wonderful. And like you were were saying, you know, to have the, to have Teresa, to have her mother, her daughter, and the advocate paint this picture of, you know, what you and I can talk about in terms of battered women's syndrome and the research and the legality. It's so sterile, but to have their firsthand voices collectively talk about this experience, I felt like it wasn't overkill in like trying to make us understand it. They were just talking from the heart and you got it. Like you yeah. just, you're just like, shit. Okay. I, yeah, I hear in their own that. words. Yes. Absolutely. I would say that what I would like to have seen more of, this was one of the things that I noted as watching this is I think that they should have gone and wrangled interviews with Bert's coworkers and supervisors, because I don't think that he probably held it together as well at work. Well, I mean, we also realize later on there's financial issues and, you know, he's gone from job to job, but you know, that instability is a huge thing in itself. Yeah. And then we add on like the other, now that we also have this understanding that he has stimulant abuse and he's a chronic smoker, like mm. every video of him. And there's tons of video footage because he filmed everything yeah. and it was on the CCTV. He's always just like puffing on a cigarette. There's ashtrays everywhere. That nicotine dependence plus a cocaine history, coercive control. This is a messed up he's dude. Just like a, really messed up. a bomb waiting to go off. Absolutely. Yeah. So Anthony's mother, Teresa, and his sister had posted missing child posters when Bert took him, but there were never any leads. And once Bert had stolen Anthony away, he isolated him, failed to send him to school. So he had little contact with the outside world, which then ties into what I said earlier. If you don't tell your kid what his real birth date is, and you don't let him know what his address is, you're cutting off two avenues for he himself to be able to start looking. Yeah. If he was so inclined. Just those two things. So the documentary goes back and forth a little bit. So I thought we would kind of do the same. Can we just talk about what happens after Anthony gets charged with the murder? Right, 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 right. So Anthony gets charged with murder and put into the adult system while awaiting trial. Mm. Not not a good choice. The judge finally approves his bond so that he can get a legit mental health evaluation, treatment, diagnosis while being monitored, which is absolutely appropriate 
and great and surprising for a number of reasons. As you indicated earlier, it's kind of mind-blowing because this is Louisiana. And y'all, I'm sorry if you're a resident of Louisiana. I'm from Alabama originally. I don't mean any disrespect to the population, but every state and area has its own challenges. But the consideration that is taken by the legal system for Anthony was phenomenal Mm -hmm. and completely appropriate and should be a benchmark for the way we handle any cases like this when it comes to DCFS, abused children that may be teens or young adults at this time. But it also left me wondering because he's a white boy and you, I, I came away from this going, yeah, so I wonder if this was an individual of color, particularly a male of color, yeah. would the same latitude be shared to him? Yeah, I don't know. I think it's a great question. Also think, you know, the criminal justice system did the right thing for him in this, but he also has this amazingly fierce and empathetic attorney who uh, absolutely was really, you know, he, he, he kind of goes into his backstory a little bit of like, I'm not a perfect person and I was a troubled teen and all this and wanting to pay that forward. But he's really able to communicate with the courts really effectively and efficiently. I think he's a really great character. I like him. He is a great character. And I would also say that like, and, and I, I think his, his advocacy and his compassion and, and passion for Anthony and for this case is really amazing. I'd also say he, he kind of likes his uh, previous history as a bad boy. There's a little oh, no, bit totally. of, a little bit of like, little you know, stuff about it. Yeah. A little smarm. <laughs> There's yeah. a little smarm to him. And, Good Southern yeah. boy. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Oh, but going back to Teresa's side of all this, she then discusses how she was able able to get custody of Anthony by the courts in her state, but the states weren't talking with each other. And a judge in another state gave custody to Bert in a terrible, terrible situation. Teresa's out one day. She's leaving young Anthony, who's a toddler, with her mother. And Bert and the police come to the door with a court order, and she doesn't know what to do. She doesn't even have time to call and track down her daughter. All she knows is that there's this, I I think it was was a state trooper or maybe a deputy. And he doesn't know because he's just got a paper, got paper. They've been, by the way, they've been stalked for months by Bert. He has been driving around around their trailer in his truck and parking it just, I mean, intentionally creating a sense of discomfort for them. So now Anthony's gone and they can't track him because they don't have any means to track where he's gone to. So that's essentially how he was kidnapped. It's like these courts weren't talking to each other, different states. Yeah. And grandma hands him over. I mean, when she's being interviewed, it's just, it's really, really hard to hear heart wrenching because then Teresa finds out and she's like, you did what? And what was she going to do? You know? Yeah. So they, again, they have the domestic violence advocate talk about the reasons domestic violence victims don't or can't fight for their kids. Things like fear, lack of money, lawsuits are expensive. And the criminal justice system has just let them down over and over again. And Teresa is so broken from trying to keep up with all of Bert's tactics and manipulations that she finally says survival is what I could afford. And it, yeah. I thought that was so powerful because that's literally all she could do is is worry about herself and her daughter at the time and give them a life and could not continue fighting in courts. And here her and her daughter just continue to put up missing posters for Anthony because it's all she could really afford every once in a while was to go, you know, have a bulk of those run off. And it's just so incredibly sad. Hmm. So that's where episode two ends. You get the story of like, okay, this is this is what happened. And um, his real mom now knows where he is because of this homicide that happened with Bert being the victim. And then episode three opens up. And while all the episodes have been super informative and engaging, it's really episode three that gives the big reveal on what was going on in Anthony's home life most recently. This episode lays out the chronic and overwhelming levels of abuse and control Bert had in the house where Anthony's growing up. So there's a particularly disturbing description of his second wife, Anthony's stepmother, who's Suzanne, and she's leaving after a brutal beating that Bert has perpetrated. And it really lays out the reality of what Bert was capable of. When Suzanne finally 
files a restraining order, you almost feel the collective audience of the show finally taking a breath. Like someone stood up against this man and is getting authorities involved. Finally, you know, someone's able to push back against him, even if it's in self-defense. I felt that as well. I thought that this was really good factual narrative storytelling on the director's part. So I don't know. I guess I had some thoughts on stepmom and kind of what was going on in the house that she's sort of subject to or a part of because it, it was conflicting for me to be honest I completely agree yeah <laughs> so you know she she marries Bert she has a teenage son of her own I guess he was smaller when they got together I mean they were married for a number of years and Bert was really shitty to her and to the son but she sees that Anthony has not had an education and she talks about like trying to teach him the alphabet and basic things like this and I understand she's a domestic violence victim but also complicit in a sense of not getting Anthony more help I don't even know how to word that <laughs> no, I, no, you're, what, no, the way you're saying it is absolutely expressive and descriptive of this awful gray area that we have to yeah. sit in. Yeah. I have the same feelings because you're looking at her going, why the fuck didn't you just grab him and get him out of there? But how could she do that? That's not her biological child. And this is this is sort of the conundrum that so many people fall into, including myself. With my years of experience, my gut reaction will be when I see a victim of IPV of like, pack your bag, let's go, fuck them, fuck right. your partner, they're assholes. And yet it's never that simple. It is it never ever that simple. Yeah. And and once I sit on it, like definitely there's the legality. This is not her chart. She's probably terrified he's going to kill all of them if she tries to do anything. She has her own son to worry about who at some point, you know, when he's old enough, he nopes out. He's like, I could not stand it anymore. And I left to go live with my dad. Or And how awful must that be? I mean, to like, leave your I, mom. I think that, Ugh. yeah, and I this mean, other to this brother. day, can you imagine like, I mean, they don't touch on that because I think that's a little bit, you know, oof, yeah, volatile. Sure. But like, that's a whole rabbit hole you can go down there of like, mom. What yeah. the fuck? Yeah. Why didn't you pull us out of there? I mean, I'm sure they have um, had that conversation. I'm sure it's very complicated, but you, you know, you do get a good idea of what she had been through as well and what it took to finally get her to file this restraining order and get out of there. And that's kind of the beginning of the downfall. So we do hear from the forensic psychologist who was hired to evaluate Anthony regarding, you know, it sounds like the referral question was definitely what, what was his mindset leading up to the shooting? And she determines that Suzanne leaving was the beginning of the end, really. Like, and, and so many times, whether it's suicidality or homicidality, we see that the loss of the relationship is that last straw for the person that's going to be violent towards himself yeah. or somebody else. Right. The one stable one, the one stabilizing factor yeah. is now gone. Even if it's a terrible relationship, it's yeah. still the, the final loss of something. So we, this is where Bert unravels and really makes sense to where Anthony's giving the accounts that his dad was binge drinking daily. He felt like he had totally lost control after she left. He was discussing more, religiosity and topics in the area of religion, putting crosses around the house. And then Anthony said he was even talking about demonic entities and being paranoid and having guns in the room. You know, I thought to me that threw me off a little bit because I thought Bert seems so, like such a calculated psychopath, but what is going on with this piece of it? Like the delusional piece? What did you think? Well, I, I don't think necessarily he's a psychopath. I think he's, he's, he has strong antisocial personality disorder traits, very strong narcissistic traits. So we have that narcopath. Mm -hmm. I'll tell you where that demonic stuff comes from. It's from substance abuse. Mm -hmm. I will bet you if we were able to get a talk screen on Bert when he was hospitalized, they would have seen stimulants yeah. in his system or he's had a history so long of so much stimulant use and now he's using alcohol. Okay. I mean, that's, I'm just saying yeah. that from professional experience, every time the religiosity and paranoia are lumped together and there's stimulants in the picture, I like, I just point towards mainly stimulants driving that. Well, so I, I, I want to give my two cents while I'm like, okay. this guy is psychopathic. And the fact that he does not give a shit about his son, he could, care less about well, caring true. for this child. The only reason he's property. he's property and the only 
good he is to him is that he's making Teresa suffer for the rest of her life. So, so you're saying the only the only purpose that Anthony serves Bert yep. is to be a way to torture somebody else. To torture someone he doesn't even have contact with anymore. He just for wants over her, a decade. Yeah. Like, yeah, I, it's not that so I get to up. see her squirm. I just know she is going to. And right. I'm going to actually house this child who's going to eventually be a man one day. Like, what the fuck did he think was going to happen, first of all? But I'm going to loosely provide for this other person just to be spiteful enough for that. So that, that's my defensive. No, I like that. <laughs> I'm going to build on it. I would go even so far as to say that since he can't really control his ex-wife anymore, right. he can control Anthony. Yeah. Yeah. Or he thinks he can, because like you said, the kid's going to grow up. Yeah. You, you can't, this is not a sustainable model. You know, it's just not at some point. <laughs> this is not a sustainable model for psychopath or for kidnapping. <laughs> please look otherwise so, for your models. Please, let's let's look at alternatives here. So in 2021, oh, I guess we're not supposed to laugh too. We got comments on another review oh, too geez. that we're not supposed not, to laugh in commentary. It's our show. Come on guys, true crime, psychology, and snark. That's us. <laughs> And laughter is sometimes an ab reaction. So if if you think we're giggling at someone's expense, we're not. If you it's only like, knew what drama. was in our brain. <laughs> Ooh, seriously, especially after my last week, which maybe yeah. sometime I can talk about, but not this week. Anyway, in 2021, Anthony then pled no contest to a charge of negligible homicide. And then he was going to have to serve five years of supervised probation and then given credit for time served in the detention center, as well as his supervised release. That's a really good deal, like exceptionally Huge good deal. Yeah. And I think like you were saying, it's because everybody was on his side. The yeah. DA was on his side. Yes, yes, absolutely. He So he does have conditions with that when he's released onto probation. Well, he's already on probation. So he has to earn his GED, which is great. He has to agree to and engage in counseling, which he was already doing, I believe, and already looked like it was working wonders. So, and he has to obtain and hold a full-time job or be enrolled in full-time school, which is pretty basic. I mean, I can imagine there are going to be a lot of people offering support in his case, particularly after the ratings that this doc garnered that, yeah. you know, it's, it's not your average story of like, oh God, I have to hire a convict or something like that. But more importantly, if Anthony is willing and able to meet all of these requirements, it will result in his being eligible to have his record expunged, which is a big deal for his future. Yeah. So his attorney said, quote, when I saw this injustice, I said, absolutely no way should this kid be in jail. Well, that's the outcome we have. It may not be the thing we would have hoped for, but it's an imperfect system. We try to find the best possible justice, and I think we got that today. I have a strong want and desire for Anthony to be successful in life. He left an incredibly hopeless life, and no one got involved to help him until he shot his father. So that's where it stands. Yeah, his his defense attorney is a, is a character, and he's a big character, but he is likable. You know, he's likable in a sense, although he's he's got a lot of bravado. Yeah. But I, I like you said, I think that he really attached to this case. I think it also, you know, he knew this is going to I'm going to do a good job on this and this is going to make me yeah, look good. Yeah, definitely. But they also interviewed say, the DA and she, like you said, like she's yeah. so freaking reasonable <laughs> looking at it from every angle, which was wonderful. And it feels like justice, not wins for prosecution. Abs perfectly. Yeah, it does. Thank you for saying that. It feels like justice. I don't think I can say enough good things about the district attorney because sometimes district attorneys don't really come off very well in these documentaries. No. She does. I think that, that she made a lot of intentional steps to protect this kid while he's in the system. And I, again, I wonder how it could happen anywhere. And seriously, how did this even happen in Louisiana? I, I mean, it's amazing yeah. to me. Yeah. Yeah. Again, frightening prison system, by the way, Louisiana residents. We love you. Don't come at us. for <laughs> No, we love you. We love you. It's your system. Invi it's not you. Invite us down. <laughs> yeah, let's go. Anthony continues working on rebuilding the relationship he lost with his biological family. That includes his mother and grandmother in Texas. And it's a bit more challenging. It seems like than they expected or hoped. So they show a basically a reunification of them in the film. Yeah. And his mother had a very insightful statement where she says that this is harder than losing him. I want to be his friend because I know 
it'll never be a mother-son relationship. That was the past, which I don't know if she's in therapy, but I think that's a wonderful way to frame it. Like, okay, yeah. I'm meeting him now. And this is, I have to accept that this is the relationship that I'm going to have with him. It cannot be a mother-son relationship. You know, there's just how do you pick up and put that back together after everything that's happened? I, I agree. I think that she's, you know, she's benefiting from good support and counseling. I would, I would say that there's always hope and, but this is where you have to be right now in the present moment is I can be a support. I can be a friend and we can move forward and hopefully, hopefully it'll evolve into something yeah. that becomes more than friendship. And I mean, I'm, you're heartened by the amount of support that he has around him, which is Sure. Pretty great. You know, for me, I, I mentioned this earlier, one of the most heart-wrenching moments is his grandmother. And she has shouldered the guilt of allowing the police to take Anthony away as a toddler under those false pretenses. And God, I would love to like get somebody to grill the judge that signed those oh, papers gosh. to allow him to be removed. But, you know, there's a scene where they're all sitting outside together and she is elderly mm -hmm. and she's like, I thought this was like a very real thing to say. She states clearly to him, I may never see you again because she knows that she is elderly and she's somewhat yeah. infirm and something amazing happens because it is the first time that you see cracks in Anthony's emotional shield. Yeah. You can see him. Oh my God, the emotion is there. There's this poor child has a full emotional life under that layer and layer of armor that he's had to develop to survive all these mm -hmm. years. Yeah. This, these scenes, I was watching this on the way to Dallas and these scenes got me all teary. I mean, you think of the crossroads where in your head, you're like, all this boy needs is love at this point. And what, what if he had been convicted and just gone to prison and he's never known love? He's just been isolated and it's been cold. I mean, could you imagine just like the monster that that would have shaped him to be? Mm. I mean, to think about it that way, was just like, thank God, like there was this intervention and this happened. And unfortunately, you know, someone lost their life. I don't think many of us watching the documentary feel super sorry for Bert, if I can right. put it that way. Yeah. But it kind of felt like the thing that had to happen to get this boy help, to get this guy to stop and put Anthony on the track for having some hope and having a chance in the future. Absolutely. Because if he had just gone to prison, I mean, I don't know, you're, you're just continuing to create a human being out of the worst circumstances. How, how much rehab or, you know, rehabilitation could he have gotten in a correctional system when they're seeing him as a murderer, yeah. like just a full on, you know, little psychopath himself, which is not what he was. No. He was a wounded, wounded young man. Yeah. Yeah. I do think, you know, they're at the end when they're interviewing him sort of post all of this happening, this is where you see like a breakdown, like in his emotionality where he, he, that shield was broken open, like you yeah. said, but you know, he, he can't even speak because he's crying on camera and it felt a little bit intrusive to me. Like, Oh, should I, I feel like I shouldn't be watching this. I mean, in one way though, it was, you know, it was just an end cap on it. I don't know if it needed to be there. Well, I wonder, no, I, I think you got a really great point. I wonder narratively, you know, as an audience member, we've now, now we're really invested in him yeah. and we're, we're, we care about Anthony so much that we don't want to see him cry. And yet I do want to see him cry because I want him, I want those emotions to have efficacy and I want them to be able to flow so that he's not For sitting sure. on them. But, but I get it. Like there's a, there's, there is a, an uncomfortable moment when you yeah. feel like he there, maybe now we're, we're thinking we want to take care of him, you know, and those questions sure. are, are too yeah, and I, I, invasive. You know, you and I have uncomfortable moments with people all the time. I don't want Anthony to feel exploited for having Cried on camera, I guess is perfectly yeah. said. Absolutely. Because of that, though, what we were able to see is more of those emotional connections mm -hmm. really starting to emerge. And I think that, you know, based on, you know, where we're coming from with this uncomfortable moment is that he actually senses some safety. Sure. So he sure. can express this where in his relationship with Bert in that environment, he was not able, he's able to tentatively let us into his world. And when he does start to cry, he 
does seem to me that he has a little bit of fear of showing any emotions. For and sure. of course, look, we know this is a trauma response. The kid was walking on eggshells for years. Oh, yeah. It's a very interesting and significant contrast to all that flat emotion versus all these pictures of him as a very young child when he was like laughing and smiling mm-hmm. with big blue eyes. I think his eyes are blue. Anyway, his eyes were big and yeah. he had a lot of emotional expression as a kid. True. And then to see this teen who's had everything shut down, I think the trigger seems to be that dad was trying to take away the one thing that he knew he had, which was the love and connection with his stepmother. Great point. Again, tying it back to the beginning, the trigger was, you wait, you've been talking to my ex. You have... I tried to take control away from me. No, I am Bert. I control everything. I control yeah. my exes. I control my kids. You know, people respond to trauma in different ways. I did want to know more about just how this film got made. You know, like it's just so interwoven with things happening in real time, almost like the yeah. staircase, you know, is like, yeah. but even sooner, you know, this. So I, I wonder if someone just jumped on it or how that happened because they're talking to him and filming, you know, him coming out of jail after the arrest. So I was just just curious, like how that all happened. But yeah, I'm. At you these know, days, I, they're probably jumping on everything as soon as they hear of a case, and they love. Well, out I with hope it. they are. Without going too much into it, maybe we can talk about this on another episode. the The example of Piper Lewis, a 15 year old black female, mm-hmm. who basically defended herself, and her experience was very different you know, in the way the judicial system treated her. And I think there's a lot of examples of that. So I don't want that to slip away. Like as much as I enjoyed this documentary, I would love for that amount of money and attention to be put to various cases that are actually a little bit more uncomfortable. Like they're talking about like, you know, sexual trafficking makes people really uncomfortable talking about it being a a person of color. It's uncomfortable, but let's give our ratings. I give it four out of five brains. I loved it. And I think that this really, in many ways, should be a benchmark for how true crime documentaries are constructed. Yeah, I gave it 4.5 brains also. I thought it was excellent. I thought it touched on so many interesting issues behind a real crime in a way that, again, you know, this is the theme that I think I'm starting to come back to with what we watch and how I judge these is that the narrative was driven by the people firsthand and the victims had a very strong voice. Well, and I see Anthony as a victim in this case. So it, it wasn't the best I've ever watched, but it's definitely top tier for me. So I, I thought it was, was very, very good, but you're right. You know, there might need to be some other documentaries covering cases that are similar to this, but involve people of color, involve some more uncomfortable situations. There was just so much yeah. psych stuff that in this that I loved it. But I wonder, I wonder if that uh, defense attorney called and had it, you know, had a hand in getting a production company out there. I didn't even think about that, but it would be Does very smart. Yeah. That would have been a very smart move if he did that. I'll give him credit for yeah. that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, guys. Hope you enjoyed this documentary review episode. Keep your suggestions coming. I feel like, oh my gosh, we only, we're only technically doing what, 12 of these a year. So we need to be really picky and choosy of what we do, but yeah, uh, maybe we can do a bonus episode or something where we just talk about our favorites and really loosey terms or something. Maybe yeah, around. and we yeah, and we have a, a couple of upcoming things that we'll be talking about. You know, a, a spooky psychological thriller to watch as part of a, a, a group experience. We'll be posting more about that pretty yep, soon. Yep. What else do we have coming up, Doctor Shiloh? So it's October. After this festival, we are putting festivals on pause, live events on pause to get through the holidays. I will probably be producing another kids podcast. <laughs> My daughter recorded her intro today for her paranormal podcast. So I need to get on that too, but we'll oh, see. Cool. We we have, yeah, again, like just going into the holidays, we'll have stuff for you guys. We'll have stuff, special stuff for our Patreon members. So please go ahead and hop over there and sign up. And let me give you an announcement. If you're a Patreon member of ours and you're listening to this right now, please make sure your address is updated because we just yes. tried to send some things out and we've been getting some stuff back returned from folks that maybe have moved and haven't updated their address. So if you want to get little surprise 
prize swag once in a blue moon from us. Update your addresses, but we will have some special things for you guys too. Cool. All right. Thanks everyone. We have really enjoyed this episode. I again, loved all the surprises and twists and turns in this story. And we will see you next time on LA. Not so. Confidential. Bye folks. Bye. Dearly, thank you for spending some time with us today. LA Not So Confidential is part of the Crawl Space Media Network in partnership with Glassbox Media. Each episode is hosted, produced, and written by Dr. Scott and Dr. Shiloh. Our post-production editing and sweetening magic is handled by the multi-talented Jason Usry of Earcult Productions. The LA Not So Confidential theme entitled Cool Vibes Film Noir is composed and performed by the talented Kevin McLeod. He graciously allows us to use his music via a Creative Commons attribution license. Please check out all of Kevin's amazing work on YouTube. All of the resources for each episode can be found on our website at www.la-not-so-confidential.com. You can find us on Instagram at LA Not So Podcast, on Twitter at LA Not So Pod, and on Facebook at LA Not So Confidential. Media inquiries and bookings are scheduled at alienistentertainment at gmail.com. Please join us each month on Saturdays at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time for a live streaming and very interactive broadcast on YouTube entitled Behind the Couch. Stay tuned to all of our social media for our live stream scheduling announcements. Subscribe to LA Not So Confidential so you never miss a new episode. Lastly, we would be honored if you joined our Patreon at patreon.com slash LA Not So Podcast so you can be the first notified about upcoming live events, social gatherings, and super cool swag coming your way. Thanks for listening and join us next time on LA Not So Confidential. Confidential.